good afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Laron Landis. Patty's at home socially distancing herself from all of us. She'll be back with us next week. Our guest is Chris Sida. He is the author of a new book, The Storm, One Voice from the AIDS Generation. Um, Chris, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Uh, thank you for coming on. Welcome. Uh, yeah, and I'm really enjoying, I'm enjoying your book a lot. Um, the, we have lots of parallels uh, in some of the stories, and we'll talk about some of them. It was like, yeah, that kind of happened to me too. Uh, you got, especially you, you got sued by your partner's parents. I got sued by my ex-partner's parents. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the setting for the book. Um, it's interesting you call it the AIDS generation, and that's really what we are. But at the beginning of this pandemic, I kept hearing on mainstream media, we've never seen anything like this at all. And I kept saying, well, I kind of have. Isn't that how you felt at the beginning of this current pandemic? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, there's so many parallels to the early days of the AIDS uh, pandemic with uh, with COVID-19. I, um, it's everything from uh, the tests not being accurate to the politicization of it um, and, you know, people refusing to wear masks. You know, back in the, in the early days of AIDS, there were people who didn't want to wear condoms. Um, and um, the discrimination that's come up, you know, from, you know, with respect to COVID-19 relative mm -hmm. to AIDS. I mean, there's so many parallels. Another parallel is, at least at the very early ages of this pandemic, is we really weren't even for sure how it was transmitted. Same thing with right. AIDS. At the right. first, they weren't sure exactly how it was transmitted. I remember in March of this year when it was really starting to hit, I closed my company and I said, everybody go home, work remotely. We don't know enough about what's happening. We're just going to work remotely till we have more information. And um, and uh, and that was similar to the early days of AIDS when people didn't know exactly how it was transmitted mm -hmm. and everybody was in terror. Yeah. Right, right, right. Uh, I mean, I was in the AIDS pandemic from the very beginning. One of my best friends was patient number 26 on the National Institute of Health list. Um, wow. he, he was getting all kinds of odd diseases like Kaposi's sarcoma. And the only thing he had in common with other people who got it, because it, it was a cancer that was just very rare, uh, and nobody got it unless they were, I think the youngest case recorded before uh, my friend Tommy was age 55, and he was 25. Mm -hmm. and, and the only thing he had in common was it was mostly Eastern European Jews who got it, and he was Jewish. So, hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So he was written up in the medical books at the time. Um, but yeah, at that time, we were taking care of Tommy, but we didn't know how it was transmitted because he mm -hmm. died the week they named it AIDS. Mm -hmm. Oh wow! Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, you wrote this book. One of the things that you say at the beginning was uh, to honor your friends who died of AIDS. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. What What did you have in mind? And, and you do that beautifully, by the way. Thank you. Well, I wrote I wrote my book to, you know, initially to try to remember what had happened to me and how it shaped me into who I am today, and uh, to remember Stephen, my partner who died from AIDS in 1991, and uh, to 
uh, sort of tell the story of how we had to fight the entire world. Um, and then to honor my very good friend, Bryn, who also died from AIDS, and um, other people that are in the book. I mean, I did not put every person that I know who died from AIDS in the book um, because it would have been way too long, but mm -hmm. I wanted to focus on the, the people who were very close to me at that period of time, and including my sister, who did not die of AIDS, but you know, ultimately died and had her own terrible story uh, being a lesbian uh, back in the, you know, a, a long time ago when it was very difficult to to be gay and actually have a job. Um, so that was a big piece of, of what I wanted to explore in the book and, and tell the story. Uh, tell the story about Bryn. So Bryn was a friend of mine who I met right after I came out in um, 1983. He was a good friend of another friend of mine who went to UCLA. And he was a male, ultimately I learned that he was a male prostitute. Um, did not know that for the first few months of um, knowing him, but we became fast friends, and, and he was a male prostitute and, and lived a very high lifestyle, even though he was my age, and uh, had a great apartment, had lots of amenities and uh, everything, and um, ultimately uh, was diagnosed with AIDS and um, died many, many years later. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, fortunately for me, I was in a position to help him at the very end of his life, um, so that, that was a wonderful gift that we were able to share at the end. Uh, okay, so this is another story where we have a parallel. Uh, my best friend in college, my college roommate, uh, came out about half a year before I did, and this is early 70s. Um, but, uh, oh, it had to, well, I was living here in Dallas, so it had to have been sometime in the 80s. I saw a set of gift cards at one of the uh, uh, card stores in our gay neighborhood, uh, with Larry's semi-nude picture on it. Uh, and uh, so I bought them all out, and uh, I had found <laughs> out that he had turned into a porn star since I had last uh, seen him. Interesting. I, I bought out all the cards and sent them to everybody I knew as Christmas cards that year. <laughs> <laughs> I got in touch with Larry, and he was hysterical. He thought that was the funniest thing. It's a great way to support your friend. That's well, wonderful. I yes, I, I thought so. I thought so. So, But you didn't know that your friend Bryn was a prostitute, did you? Not at first. No, he eventually, he eventually told me, um, and it didn't, make, it didn't make a difference to me at all. And we were just, we were just great friends. And, um, mm -hmm. and then as, he, as his illness progressed, he lived with us for a while um, after he gave up his um, career. And uh, while he was figuring out what he was going to do for the rest of his life, and he went... He ultimately moved back to um, Minneapolis to live with his sister, and she said she would take care of him. Um, but as was very common with AIDS back in the 1980s and early 1990s, is family members could only handle it so far. Mm -hmm. And eventually she um, threw him out into the street in the middle of the winter. Mm. Um, and that was where I was able to come in and get him to a safe place for the rest of, for the rest of his life. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you know, and just even hearing that kind of thing, uh, I know people who had similar experiences, usually it was family members who uh, either threw them out or came into town and scooped them up and brought them back to their small town in Arkansas where they could take them, take care of them better. They thought, even though the town didn't have a doctor that knew anything about HIV or care for people with HIV. Right. I mean, there was a lot of um, 
scattered, a lot of people scattered out of Los Angeles because of AIDS in the early days of the virus. And similar to what happened with COVID back in March and April and May, I mean, more and more people uh, who my, uh, my friends have moved away from Los Angeles because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's another parallel between the two, the two illnesses. Right, right. Um, Go when you came out, um, I, if you could talk about the story about you coming out to your, uh, which I thought was pretty brave, especially back in the early 80s, and as you came out to your fraternity brothers, that's something people still won't do to, to this day. Yes, I mean, I did it. I really, It was uh, January of 1984. I was a senior at UCLA, I had two quarters away from graduation, and my fraternity had figured out that I was gay because they... They knew my roommate was gay, and they connected the dots. And uh, so I heard heard that a rumor was going around, and and I, I thought about I could you know I could avoid everybody for two more quarters and just graduate. And but they were my friends, and I had spent a lot of time with them for the last four years. And so I I just decided that I was going to show up at a chapter meeting one Monday night, uh, have to make an announcement, and I was going to tell everybody that I was gay. And there's over eighty over eighty men in my fraternity when I did this, all crammed in this chapter room and um i just stood up and i asked the president for some time and he said sure and i got up and i said um i know there's a rumor going around about me being gay and i just want you to all know it's true and it was a you could have heard a pin drop normally there was a lot of talking mm-hmm. and uh in the room but everybody was dead quiet and um and i went on and i just said you know i hope you just will judge me for our friendship and you won't um judge me for anything else and um and then uh and eventually one of my fraternity brothers um stood up and said you know i i think that was really brave for you to say and uh they ultimately i offered my resignation from the fraternity and they wouldn't take it they they just voted me into alumni status and it ended up being this it was a very terrifying moment of my life that actually ended up turning into be uh, one of the greatest moments of my life because I realized that they really did like me for who I was and they weren't going to judge me and they just wanted me to be mm-hmm. still a member. It was a great experience. That's and, awesome. That was what year? That was uh, 1984. Okay, so 1984. Talk a little bit about the background, what we were going through. Uh, that's right. That's the first year that there was an AIDS death that we know of here in Dallas. Oh, in Dallas. In yeah. Dallas. Um, in Dallas. It had already it hit Houston um, about a year earlier, and we just knew it wasn't coming to Dallas because it was all the way down in Houston, and we just don't share things with Houston. But in <laughs> nineteen, <laughs> that sounds like a Texas joke to me. Uh-huh. It is. Uh, but in, in nineteen eighty four in L A. in San Francisco, eighty four. That's what I said. In eighty four oh, in L A. Yeah. in San Francisco, I'm assuming you'd already had several deaths. Well, the er- the earliest cases. Um, the ones that are typically cited are in 1981, where they found a group of, of gay men in L.A. and New York City around the same time that both um, had very similar characteristics and died of, of, of you know, mysterious illnesses. Um, so it had been going on, but it hadn't really mushroomed yet. So 1984, it was you, know, you were aware of AIDS, but it wasn't really exploding yet. I really think that from my perspective, having lived through it, it really was 1985 mm-hmm. when, you know, end of 1984, it was really around the time when Ryan White, the hemophiliac boy, mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. diagnosed with AIDS. That's really when all the rails, everything went off the rails. It was crazy time, and all of a sudden people knew it wasn't just gay men. It could be everybody. It was 
it was children, it was women, it was straight people, it was gay people, and it was going to be big. And then 1985 was just one thing after another, one shoe dropping and one, another shoe dropping. And um, so in 1984, at the time I came out, AIDS was around, but it still wasn't at the forefront of, you know, at least being a college student and just coming out of the closet a few months earlier. It's really still very new to me, but I knew I knew already that AIDS was that the gay community was ground zero for, for AIDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, because of the AIDS deaths, at least 80% of them were gay men. At first, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it really, here I know it stayed that way. Um, while they kept warning about other groups, it didn't happen in other groups really very quickly. Um do you know, Laurent, who the first death was? You wouldn't know him, actually. No. Because you were just a child then. He <laughs> <laughs> was the owner of one of the bars. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So that was the first one here. Um, uh, tell us a little bit how you met Stephen. Well, I actually met Stephen in the gym in West Hollywood. So West Hollywood in, in Los Angeles is the the gay neighborhood, one of the gay neighborhoods. And um, and there was a gym called the Athletic Club there where I worked out, and um, he was a member there too. And one night I was uh, brushing my teeth after I'd finished working out, and he came up and introduced himself to me, and um, we spoke, and he gave me his phone number, and, and that was the beginning of our, of our relationship. You were how old at the time? Actually, in 1984, when I met him, I was 21 years old. Okay, so this was right after college for you. Well, this was, I was still in college. You were still in college. In my senior year, yes. Okay, so this is really your first relationship. Um, had oh, you, for sure. How much had you dated before that? Um, I had dated one, uh, one guy in the summer of 1983. Um, and I had gone on a number of dates with men, but nothing more than a one or two dates. So, so Stephen was definitely your first serious one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and you ended up being together for about seven and a half years. That's right. We were together seven and a half years. Which another parallel because Brian and I were married. We're, we're together seven years. So. Wow. Because um, I'm a double widow. Oh, and, no. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. Do we need to take our break, Josh? Yeah. Okay, we'll talk about that a little bit after the break. Uh, okay. you're listen Yeah, you're listening to Lambda Weekly here on 89.3 KNON-FM. I'm Dave Taffet here with Laron Landis. Our guest is Chris Zida. His book is The Storm, One Voice from the AIDS Generation. We're talking about what it meant to be a member of that AIDS generation. We'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. And this is Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here with Laurent Landis. Our guest is Chris Zida. His book is The Storm, One Voice from the AIDS Generation. And I shouldn't just drop what I said just before the break, that I'm a, a widow twice. My first one was my college boyfriend, John. And John and I went out for about three years. And then we remained closest friends. So uh, college, I graduated 75. And he died in 1990. So during his final illness, I was with him in Atlanta where he lived for the last three months of his life where he was just in the hospital for the last three months. Um, and I was there taking care of him. Uh, we had talked about his parents sued us 
And when I say us, he had a, a partner at the time. So his parents came in, and they'd fly in from New York, and they'd come, they'd visit him in the hospital, his mother would go out shopping, she'd come back, show him what she bought. He was in no condition. I mean, he needed constant care. He had, um, oh, what is it, one of the initial diseases that affects the brain. And one of the things it did to him was he couldn't... Oh, toxoplasmosis? Uh, could have been. Okay. No, 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 no. CMV. Okay. Cytomegalovirus, which can attack any organ. It attacked his brain. And oh. it affected the portion of the brain that separates different things. So he couldn't be jumping around in a conversation. He couldn't have multiple people talking to him because he couldn't <clears throat> separate and see who the different people were. So his mother was driving us crazy. Anyway, so we were making decisions about John's health and his crazy parents were flying in and out of town to see him and then sued us for making the decisions and not including them. So this is in Georgia in 1990. Mm. Well, we had a judge who said to us, do you mind making decisions with them? We said no. Wow. So it was kind of like your story where you weren't trying to cheat his parents out of anything and we'll get to that. But... He's, uh, he said to the parents, do you mind sharing decisions with the two of them? They said, no. <laughs> that was the decision. Yeah. And then they left wow. town immediately. Wow. So, well, that was really common back in those days. I mean, parents were really, families were really difficult to deal with in the early days of the AIDS crisis because, you know, gays could not marry mm -hmm. then. So partners did not really have... The protections that married couples have and and even with even if they had legal agreements they had put in place for that they could still be challenged mm -hmm. still be dragged right. into court and and families you know because parents were losing their son and had all sorts of guilt and, and feelings about it uh, it was really difficult emotions for many many families i mean including i mean including my my relationship with my own parents and my relationship with Stephen's parents, I mean, people just went absolutely nuts. Can you talk a little bit about what, what your relationship that led up to what happened between you and his parents? Um, you know, when did you find out that <clears throat> he was positive, um, th th that journey? Sure. Well, he really started to show symptoms in 1986. And, um, of course, that was a time when test uh, age tests were not very reliable yet, mm -hmm. and you could get one, but if you got one, it would go on your health insurance record, and then insurance companies would would use that information to discriminate against you and try to cancel your policy. And if, mm -hmm. and if you ever needed to switch, you wouldn't be able to get another policy because it was on your record. So he started to show symptoms in, in around 1986, and he got sicker and sicker and sicker, and um, and ultimately. Um, had his first very serious illness, uh, pneumocystis pneumonia, which almost killed him in, in the summer of 1988. And fortunately, they came up with a treatment for pneumocystis, which was the pentamidine mist. Right, right. So yeah. once, he, once he had that bout, and he, he did almost die, but once he recovered, pneumocystis was relatively treatable with, with that, with pentamidine. And... Um, and the interesting thing about AIDS is that, is that every year that progressed, 
tested more and more drugs that could at least treat various symptoms of it, even though it couldn't treat the underlying virus. And so the, the mortality rate did, did ratchet down over time because people lived longer and longer mm-hmm. as time went by. Similar to, again, another parallel to COVID-19 because um, now, you know, we're several months into it, you know, people, fewer and fewer people are dying when they get it because they, the medical community knows how to treat it better mm-hmm. because there's just more information. And there are more drugs that seem effective, and apparently right. there are some experimental drugs that people like Rudy Giuliani gets. <laughs> right. So, um, but, but there were a number of different drugs that came along that uh, helped keep people alive longer during the AIDS crisis. So, so you, right. it's confirmed that he's positive in 88. How soon after that did, was that news shared with his family? I'm just, oh, trying, to say, I'm just trying to set he, the stage to what ultimately yeah. happens. So, so when, he, um, when he went into the intensive care with pneumocystis, um, I actually, while he, was, while he was almost in the ICU, I called his parents, and they lived in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I called, we were in, actually, he was in the hospital in La Jolla, La Jolla, California. And I called them and I said, okay, Stephen is sick in the hospital. He has AIDS. Um, and then that was also the phone call where his father learned that I was, that Stephen was gay and he had a partner and it was me. His oh. mother knew that he was gay and his mother knew I was his partner, but his, they had all kept it secret from his father. And so... His mother flew out to La Jolla, um, and you know, we, we helped him get back, and then ultimately he went on um, disability after that bout and moved back up to Los Angeles where I was living. Um, and so, but after that, after he recovered, um, his parents never visited again until um, his mother finally came out the last six months of his life. So there was a very, he had a, mm. he had a, a difficult relationship with his parents. I wouldn't say that they they fought they just weren't close and there's there was some undercurrent of you know a difficult relationship so he had moved from the east coast to la to put some distance between them and um they didn't speak a lot on the telephone um and we did visit them you know at their at a rental house they had in maine and we visited them at their house in yorktown um but uh, that was not very much for seven and a half years, not very much. And I didn't really know them uh, very well. And certainly his father, because his father really didn't come to visit Stephen until really the last two weeks of his life when he was already in a coma and not speaking. And mm. um, But his mother did come for the last six months and, and she tried her best, but had her own you know issues and it was very difficult and she was very... Uh, it was hard for her, it was hard, hard on Stephen, it was hard on the nurses we had in our house. Um, and it was like watching a person slowly lose their grip on reality. So, in the case that I was talking about, I think the problem we had with John's parents, who they, we were all very close until John got sick, I think a part of the problem was what they saw was the gay community, and when I say the community, John had lots of friends who came and helped, and uh, when he was home, cooked for him, when he was in the hospital, came, visited him, uh, and when people came to visit, I mean, it was more than just sitting there and talking to him, it was helping clean him up and making sure he had ice when he needed, you know, just going, getting him things. 
I think his parents saw how good we were in caring for their son and, and knew that they were terrible at it. And there was a jealousy there. This was much more than I, that. I, well, I think there was a jealousy, too, because uh, in a parallel in my life, um, our friends came to the house to visit Stephen. We had full-time nurses, so we had 24-hour nurses, luckily, to do all those, uh, all the caring things. But people came to visit him to say hello and to talk to him, and, and she didn't know any of them because she had never visited mm-hmm. um, the whole time we were together. And so she was very unfriendly to them and very standoffish and was really mean, was, was sort of rude to them, uh, particularly one friend we had. Um, and that was because there was a jealousy happening, I think. Um, and I think a guilt, perhaps, about not being there for his life and not knowing these people and not knowing them. They didn't know anything about his life in California and his friends and how, you know, they didn't know my family and my parents. And um, there was just a real, it was very sad on a lot of levels. Talk a little bit about your relationship with your parents and, and coming out to them and how they accepted you because it was a mixed relationship there too yes I mean ultimately my parents made the right choices but um, you know I was raised Roman Catholic which is a you know a very difficult religion and um, my parents were very classically Catholic and yes. so guilt I told I told my parents um, that I was so I came out to my parents in the worst way possible so Stephen was in intensive care at Scripps Hospital in La Jolla and I called him from the payphone, and I said, Stephen's in intensive care. He has AIDS. I'm his partner. I'm gay. All in basically one long sentence. And this was this was really right as they were about to depart on a two-week vacation to Ireland. I mean, it was mm. you couldn't really do mm. a, a more dramatic and worse thing to Catholic parents and say that all in one long sentence. And so... Oh, oh, I think I have one extra thing. Josh, our board operator before the show, said when he came out, it was also a a revenge type of thing. So he was raised Catholic, and he came out to his parents and told them, I'm gay and I'm Jewish. On Christmas Day. On Christmas Day. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. And the thing they had the trouble with was the Jewish part. (laughs) Right, that's funny. Um, But I... But I, so I, I did that, and my parents didn't speak to me for four months. But mm-hmm. they eventually started speaking to me again. But ultimately, when Stephen got very sick, um, right before he did go um, in, in the hospice care, they couldn't handle it anymore. And, and they, my mother said some terrible things to me, and I just cut off my relationship with them. And I basically terminated my terminated them as my parents. Um, we didn't speak again for three years. But ultimately, they they apologized, and they had done a lot of a lot of reading, a lot of researching. They'd spoken to all their priests in their life, and all their doctors they could find, and everybody, and done a lot of real research to realize that you know being gay was not a choice. It was something that was biologically happens in nature in every species. And then yep. my father wrote a very heartfelt apology to me, and we patched it all up, and mm-hmm. uh, we had a great rest of their lives together they're both not around anymore mm-hmm. but we were able to really come back and uh and forgive each other that's great to hear yeah and it's too bad that didn't happen earlier but ultimately it's great that that happened mm-hmm. of course i my- think it had to ha- i think it had to happen that way and mm-hmm. i think i'm glad it actually did happen that way because 
when Stephen was really dying, I think um, it was something that I sort of needed to go through with him alone, and I'm not sure that my parents, in the state they were then, would have been actually supportive to me, and so I'm glad it was sort of a break during that period. When did Stephen actually pass? He died in July of 1991. So it was still the height of the AIDS epidemic. Mm -hmm. we, we were discovering new treatments for uh, um, for opportunistic infections, but there was still no treatment even on the horizon for HIV medications. No, nothing really got going until early 1995, late 94. Mm -hmm. and, and those were still experimental. Right. So... Um, but he, but he passed, and then after that point, his parents, um, interestingly, they had never come really out to visit California during our relationship. And then after the funeral, which we did hold in Washington, D.C., uh, the memorial service was there. They both came back out to our house, and then, of course, tensions got really high because they, they wanted everything in the house. There really wasn't anything of value, um, but they really went off the deep end, and that was ultimately what... Uh, resulted in our lawsuit because they went off to work one day and went back to work uh, three weeks after Stephen had died. And um, while I was at work, they changed the locks on my house, and then ultimately they stole everything, including my college and graduate school diplomas, and they took it all back to Virginia. Claiming that everything wow. that they took was something Stephen had paid for. Right. <laughs> because so Stephen was 12 years older than me, so they had in their mind that Stephen was... Uh, I guess I was some sort of a kept man, and I wasn't pulling my feet, but they didn't realize that, you know, I was an executive at the Walt Disney Company, and I was investing uh, the Walt Disney Company's money, and I was making a great seller. I was making more than Stephen had ever made as an attorney, and um, they just really miscalculated that. So they just took everything. They just assumed it was all his, and they, you know, part of it was grief. Part of it was greedy, being greedy, and... Um, so they took every, they locked everything. They took everything, photographs, my papers, my tax returns. Wow. Um, my piano, my piano. Um, now, if they took your books. tax returns, they could have seen how much you made. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They but, were just, they were just, they were just spiteful. And um, we ended up in a lawsuit for about a year over it. And um, really, all I wanted them to do was give back my stuff. Um because the house, the house actually was mostly not yours. Right. It was. I had only owned. I had only owned eight percent of it, um, which was all I. When I bought it, I all, all I felt I could really afford because I was going through graduate school. Uh, well, you were early twenties at the time. Right. I was very very young. I didn't have a lot of money, and um, and so there wasn't any money to fight about. And um, I really wanted my stuff back. I mostly wanted my piano and my diplomas back because um, there were some diplomas that, weren't real, that were really irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, we went through a year lawsuit. It was crazy. All kinds of crazy stuff happened. And I don't want to give spoilers away, but it's quite a dramatic section of the book. Mm -hmm. um, the things that these people went to, because they were, it went, you know, they did, because they were so, so angry and so spiteful. <clears throat> so, what... I know you don't want to give any spoilers away, but can you at least tell us what, where, was the, where did the lawsuit take place, in California or Virginia? Oh, in, La, in Los Angeles. So yeah, I sued, okay. when, once they stole everything, I sued them for my stolen property, and, and then they countersued me. But we were in, once you sue, you're, you're in the jurisdiction you sue in. So they were, we were in Los Angeles. 
Okay. And we had a, we had a trial in downtown LA, mm-hmm. which was um, crazy. And and um, you know, the judge was the judge was actually really great. He was very concerned with doing the right thing. Um, but I had to put on this whole case about you know how we were together, and he loved me, and I loved him, and. Um, we had to go through everything that they had stolen, and my therapist got on the stand. The police officers got on the stand who were there the day that um, that I actually came back to my house to try to move out. Um, it was just a it was a really dramatic court case. And it's not like you were trying to keep the house from them. No. You would have been entitled to your eight percent of the proceeds, right? And the house had appreciated in value, right? Uh, there was a lot of, I mean, it was a very strange situation because 92% of the house was really in their name. And so, and 8% was in my name. And um, there was hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity in the house the day that Stephen died. But the, the crazy thing was is they couldn't afford to pay the mortgage because they were retired. I was always, I was paying all the, by the time Stephen died, I was paying all the costs for the house, the mortgage, the the gardener, the utilities. And so I was so angry at them for stealing my stuff. I said, fine, I'm just not going to pay for anything anymore. And I threw the house into foreclosure. And so by the time it was done, uh, there was nothing left. All the equity in the house was gone. And they were furious about that. Cause, but it was all they had to really ever do was get back my stuff. But they just wouldn't do it. As tragic, as tragic as it is to hear your story and other same-sex couples who went through similar um, situations, and it, it, it's textbook of why we needed marriage equality. Right. I mean, we had already seen other friends go through a similar thing where one of the partners died and then the parents swooped in and were terrible to the surviving partner. Mm-hmm. And then some of the groups, the grief groups that I went to after Stephen died were similar where people would just tell these horror stories mm-hmm. of, and then the, and they were telling these horror stories at the same time that they were HIV positive and they were fighting AIDS themselves and they didn't have the strength to really fight back against these parents. But I fortunately did have the strength and the money to fight them. And I decided I was just going to, it was a principal issue for me. I wasn't going to walk away from it. I was going to hold them accountable for our relationship. And I ultimately did. It cost you a fortune, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the in addition to the house. The most expensive negative negative return investment I ever made, but frankly, it was worth every penny. I, so we lost hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity in the house, and it cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars of legal fees. But um, I was so angry, and I was, I was just, I'm going to sue them until they give me back my diplomas. That was really my mantra. And it took them all the way to the middle of trial when his father finally had a breakdown on the witness stand and um, the lawyers dragged them into a conference room and I think held a gun to their head and said you are going to settle this or you're going to lose and then I, at that point they agreed to give back my thing. In fact one of the jurors and we need to take a break one of the jurors asked to be taken off the case because he said he hated the parents so much. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Which is not the usual reason jurors are removed from a jury. No. <laughs> right. We need to take uh, a break. We're talking to Chris okay. Sida. His new book is The Storm, One Voice from the AIDS Generation. And we'll be back with more of Lambda Weekly right after this. And this is Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Leron Landis. And we're talking to Chris Sida about his new book, The Storm. Um, just for the record, 
you were talking about all these terrible coming out stories. I don't want to leave it there. My mother worked at Sarah Lawrence College, big lesbian school, and basically told me I was gay. So that was my traumatic coming out story. <laughs> wow, that's really great. Yeah, and so, and ever since then, I've just approached the world as if everybody's gay and they need to come out to me as straight. I, I just don't <laughs> assume that anybody is straight. It's like I'm, if I see a male and female couple, I assume he's with his sister unless they tell me that it's a girlfriend. Oh, so wow. I, that's just, I mean, I, I do a gay radio show. I work for the gay newspaper. Uh, I go to the gay synagogue. I, I don't come in contact with those kind of people. Um, at the end of your trial, finally, when you got most of your stuff back, even though most of it was damaged, um, you decided to forgive everybody. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that, because forgiveness really is a very powerful thing, and most people think it's good for the person receiving the forgiveness. You do this for yourself, and that's what forgiveness is really about. You're right. I mean, I had, um, so one of the things I did after Stephen died is I did just a lot of self-exploration. I went to grief support groups. I, I saw a therapist. I, I went to the Bodhi Tree bookstore, which is a, a very uh, California New Age bookstore, and I read lots of books there. And, um, and I learned there was this one book about forgiveness that really resonated with me where it said that if you forgive people, it actually frees you, not them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and after we had gone through this crazy trial and we got to this dramatic moment where Stephen's father had a sort of breakdown on the stand, I just knew that it was time to end it. And thankfully, after they got dragged into that conference room and they came back out and the lawyers said they were finally ready to return my things, I was in the place where I just wanted to forgive them and move on. My lawyer didn't want to set, to settle at that point. He wanted to just take everything they had, and and I I didn't want to become their landlord. I didn't want all their money. I didn't I didn't need it. And so um, I just I settled for really after all this money I'd spent. I felt I said literally for just give me back my diplomas, give me back my piano, give me back um, some photographs, give me back some some minor things, and. Um, and I wanted to just forgive them and move on. And um, and it's a very powerful thing. Uh, I think that, you know, forgiveness is supposedly part of the Roman Catholic Church, but it's a, it's a part that most people ignore about the, the Roman Catholic Church. But it really is powerful, and it's freeing, and it allows you to move on when you forgive other people for things they did. And, and it makes what they did to you, it doesn't mean that you don't remember it. It just means that it takes away the power it might have over you to make you miserable. It, and, it didn't um, mean that you were going to become friends with his parents. No, it didn't. I mean, they had very few redeeming qualities the way you describe them. I mean, part of my settlement was they must never contact me again, <laughs> which that, which thankfully they followed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're, they're, <laughs> the one thing they insisted on the settlement was that the Los Angeles Times reporter that was sitting in our courtroom ready to write an article about the trial that if we got interviewed, we would only say nice things about each other. That was what was important to them. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this trial was Um, so expensive. Every time you filed something or they filed something, it had to have cost them something, whether you filed it or they filed it. And and so you decided to just pile on the, uh, the motions. Um, yes. How did they afford it? They were on a fixed income. I, 
I don't know what they did. I don't know if the, um, you know, so one of the things about lawsuits is if your lawyers, it's difficult for your lawyers to resign after you get going. So I don't know if they ended up with a really big bill that they didn't pay or that they had to take out a mortgage on their house to pay. I just don't know what, how mm-hmm. they paid for it. But after we had, we had this one big knockdown drag out motion, um, which was called an ex parte motion. Ex parte motions in law, in the legal world are very expensive. It's where you have to run around, it's like an emergency motion. And um, when I got the bill for this first one, I thought, oh wow, this is crazy, this is so expensive. And then I, the light bulb went off in my head that it might be a way to bring them to the table by just having ex, lots of ex parte motions. So we had more than a dozen of them. In now now your attorney must have thought, okay, my client is nuts. The, the normal thing to do when you see something is real expensive that an attorney's doing for you, you don't say, hey, let's do more of these. <laughs> no, unless you're really angry, which is what I was. Yeah. And ultimately, my lawyer um, left his law firm, and I hired him full-time just to work for me. Um, and I had this personal lawyer on my staff um, who was just working for me, and all we did were ex-party motions. Um <laughs> Because I was just, I, w- I didn't, you know, I kept thinking, if we just get it to be expensive enough, they're going to give me my diplomas back mm-hmm. and my piano back. But they really held on all the way to to trial. They really, really did. They also had your clothes. I mean, they really took everything. They, yeah, they had my suits. All, I mean, uh, working at Disney, I had to go out and buy new suits because I didn't have <laughs> anything to wear to work. They they took all kinds of things. I'm, I'm just, I'm just curious. I mean, I know, I know it's over with, but what was their rationale for wanting to keep your diplomas? I don't know. They never explained it. I never asked. That is them. the weirdest thing. I think it was. Um, you know, I can only conjecture, and I would just say that they were so angry um, about Stephen dying. He was an only child, so that may have been a piece of it. They were so angry. They didn't know him. They maybe felt guilty. It was a combination of a number of things. And the easiest lightning rod to be angry about, angry at, was me. Because mm-hmm. I was his partner. And they, bl- I mean, they blamed me for everything. They blamed me for the fact that he had AIDS, even though I ended up testing negative. I never got it. Um, they blamed me for everything that happened to him. And I think when, you know, when he died, they just went, they went insane mm-hmm. on a certain level. And that was a big piece of it. Hmm. Fortunately, of the four diplomas they took, they said the only two that came back were the ones that I could have never replaced. Oh. The mm-hmm. two that the two that they that they kept and destroyed or lost or whatever um, were ones that I was able to order and get and a duplicate copy. Oh, okay, so it, it all worked out. But um, uh. huh. um, and um, I've talked about this on the air lots of times. Uh, you know, I said I'm a double widow. Um, my husband, Brian, I met in about 2009, and uh, he died very suddenly in 2016. Um, here, here's where the in-law stories uh, diverge. I asked his mother after he died what she wanted, and she said she didn't want to take anything. And I've over the last few years, I've found some things that meant more to her because they were family things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've given them to her. And she and I have become better friends now than we were even when Brian was alive. Um, yeah, and, and See, that, that's great. That's how it's supposed to work. Right. Families are supposed to support each other. Right. 
right. So, yeah. Um, but uh, I'm getting the signal from Josh. We have one more minute. Um, okay. Because one of the things we're doing here at Tana when we practice safe radio, um, we change the windscreens, we, change, we wipe down all the counters. We're trying to keep this very safe because there are, during a week, over 100 different DJs who come into the studio. And so far, luckily, knock wood on our desk, no COVID here at KNON. Nope. Because Good. we're being careful, face mask distancing, and uh, taking care of each other. Well, well before we go... Thank you for having me on your show. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, you're oh, welcome. You can, can, my book. can you tell us really quick, where can we get your book? Uh, you can get your book at... Get my book at um, any local... I think many local bookstores are carrying it. You can order it from... Book Soup website in Los Angeles. You can order it from Barnes and Noble, um, and, I, and Amazon.com even has it. Uh, but support your local bookstore first. Go to your local bookstore first, and if they don't have it, then go to the bigger guys because the local people really need help right now. And they so can true. always order it. Yep. Yeah. Good, uh, Stephen. Thank you thank for you being so on much. again. The Chris. As uh, Chris, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at I'm, I'm looking at notes. You know, I keep this folder of notes. I really need to clean it out. I'm looking at the wrong page. Chris. Well, it was a pleasure to speak to both of you. Thank, thank you so you. much. Stay safe and healthy and have a wonderful holiday. You, you too. too. All right. Bye. And the book, again, is The Storm, One Voice from the AIDS Generation. You know, as much as HIV and AIDS has been a part of our lives, we don't talk about it much on the air anymore. Mm -hmm. But huge parallel between HIV and uh, the COVID pandemic. Anyway, for all of us here at Lambda Weekly, we're going out with some music from Sonia. She's been on our show several times. Mm -hmm.